So in some point in, in our lives, uh, we've been managers, we've been clerks, uh, owners, assistants, students, or maybe you've never had a job yet because you aren't old enough. Uh, but we've all had something in common in our different jobs or schools. Sometimes our bosses, um, our teachers, uh, or our parents don't show up. Get, maybe they get sick or they call in due to an emergency. My parents never called in for an emergency. They just said they were sick and locked the door and then said, take care of yourself. But, they get, but as they are gone, they give us a specific job to do uh, while they are absent. But something happens. I don't know if this happens to you, but somewhat of a spirit of selfishness sets in. This sense of, <laughs> I'm God today because my boss is not here. <laughs> um, we become sloths and our self-interest take over. We immediately think we won't have to work as hard. Even if we do anything, we won't do it as the boss, teacher, parent wants it done. And when we do it, they're just going to come back and fix it because we didn't do it right. Um, we're going to get away with more, or we think it is a free day because the boss is gone. My wife and I went to the same high school, and uh, we would uh, have this same substitute teacher who would uh, fill in from time to time. Her name was Mrs. Cornette. She spoke Spanish better than she did English. But this substitute teacher, Miss Cornette, when she came, we thought, free day. <laughs> We're like, yes, we don't have to do as much as the teacher would make us do. And especially if she subbed for the same chemistry teacher that my wife and I had, uh, we knew today was going to be much better than if the chemistry teacher was there. Uh, the substitute would always try to use the teacher's notes. She left for the substitute, but nothing would ever get done. These would always, there would always be those couple students who would make sure they completed the task because they knew the teacher was going to come back and review and grade what we were asked to do. Then they would get ridiculed for doing it or being uh, the teacher's pet. But the rest of us, the master was gone and we had fun to work on. I can tell, cannot tell you how many times the next day there was a report to our teacher about something that I had done that for some reason either landed me in the principal's office or out in the hall. And so I would be scorned greatly by that teacher. But man, it was a good day before and I lived it up. But how we view and treat our work and masters here on earth is a direct reflection on how we view God. So in my case, I had a very low view of school and my teachers, uh, which reflected my very low view of God. It led to consequences for me every time the teacher came back. Why did, the con why did, why did consequences affect me? We have been designed and created by God to work. Work is one of the core places where we find our dignity and purpose. And when we don't have work or are irresponsible in work, we lose a piece of ourselves. We lose our sense and uh, and our uh, sense of worth. When we don't work, it impacts so many areas of our lives and ultimately our identity and reason for moving forward in life. A lack of work contributes to poverty, crime, homelessness, domestic violence, substance abuse, unwanted pregnancies, divorce, and suicide. Uniquely in the work that God has placed me in, I see this every day. So tomorrow you are going to wake up and you're going to go to work and God has uniquely equipped each of you for 
that task. We can either reject that call or we can embrace it as something God has specifically clipped us for our job tomorrow for a season or a lifetime. Today we're going to look at Matthew 25, 14 through 13. Please note, the text is not specifically about work. So if you came here today looking for five ways to be a better employee, you might have come to the wrong place today. But rather, something bigger is going on in this passage this morning. And it's how do we live in the delay of Christ's return, which affects our work and every part of our life. How do we say, stay ready in anticipation and what I believe is not coincidental? And what I believe is not coincidental, Jesus uses work as the parable to show us how we must live in the waiting and the delay of his return because it's something we do every single day. Jesus knew that his followers, his disciples could connect to this. Tim Keller says, is the parable of the talents teaches that biblical success is working diligently here and now. Today we are going to learn about three different servants viewed, who viewed their master and their work. We will find two servants were like those who, did, who were those good students. No matter who the substitute teacher was, yeah, they got their work done. Because the master was going to come back. And then there's one servant who, who like the slothful student, took full advantage of the master being gone. So in Matthew 25, 14 through 30, I feel it to be appropriate uh, to just pause for a moment we'll get, before we begin to unpack this text to go to God's word in prayer. Bow with me. Dear Jesus, I pray as we begin to unpack Matthew 25, 14 through 30, a text that you have uh, clearly shown us of how we are to be ready and how we are to work and in, in how we are to prepare for your return. Lord, guide us. Lord, give us clarity on who you have called us to believe be as the church to be as men and women, as husbands and wives, as, mo- as mothers and fathers, as children to our parents, to be sons and daughters, whatever it may be, Lord, give us clarity in the things that you have called us to as we wait in anticipation for your return. Amen. Today we're looking at a passage where Jesus equips us for faithful working in the delay of his return. We've looked at three themes in these last few weeks. Number one, we must always be ready because Jesus comes while we go about routine business. And number two, even we don't consider Jesus' return, he may come sooner than we think while we go about our business. Number three, Jesus may come later than we think, therefore we must stay ready for his return. And today, what we will look at is how do we live in that delay? How do we live? We see four people in this story. We see the master and then the three servants. One servant was given five talents. Second servant was given two talents. The third servant was given one talent. We walk into this parable after Justin preached last Sunday about how we must always be ready because Jesus will come while we go about routine business. Though at this time, Jesus did not know the day or hour of his return, so he preaches to his disciples to know how to live while we wait in delay. 
Jesus relates our waiting to a master that is preparing to go away and give his servants specific tasks to accomplish until he returns. This master is extremely, extremely wealthy, and he owns a lot of stuff. How do we know he's wealthy? He calls the seven talents he gave to the first two servants as little. He gives each man a certain amount of talents according to their abilities. This master knew his servants' abilities and what they were capable of doing. He entrusts them a total of eight talents. I want you to just process this with me. A talent was a measure of wealth. One talent was equivalent to 20, get this, 20 years of wages. So basically, this master said, I am giving each of you a total, I'm giving you a total of 160 years of wealth. So between the three, uh, see, a talent would weigh nearly 70 pounds, 75 pounds of silver. Some theologians have argued what the equivalent of that would be today, and the best way I heard it described in my studies was if Jesus gave three different servants five, two, and one million dollars to manage. So that breaks down to a person making about 50,000 a year. This is not that much money, right? Here, I'm going to give you seven million dollars and I want you to manage it. <laughs> so Jesus shows us the master is very wealthy man, and he has given his servants plenty of training to manage his wealth while he is away. He doesn't say what the, the, the master does not say what he's going to do. He said he's going away. The master has given these servants much, and in return is entrusting them to work diligently to help grow his wealth and his property. As Jesus continues this story, the master comes back after a long time to settle his accounts with his servants. The first servant has taken the five talents that were given to him and he traded with them and had made five more talents. So he has taken $5 million and multiplied it to $10 million. Wouldn't that be nice? You can just give me 1% of that, right? So at this time, Jesus did not know the day and hour. Let's see, whoops. Um, he didn't know the day or hour of his return. So he preaches to his disciples. We've already talked about that. The master looked at his servant. Uh, and multiplied his wealth and said, well done, good and faithful servant. He says, you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Can you imagine that first servant who is just told by his master who had great wealth to say, I'm going to take care of you for the rest of your life. The, the master then went to the second servant who he had given two talents he made two talents more. So he was given $2 million, and he said, you have multiplied this another $2 million. You have produced $4 million in wealth. In the same way as the first servant, the master looked at how the servant had multiplied his wealth and said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He then came to the last servant who had went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Can imagine burying 20 years worth of income, of wealth into the ground. But the master looked at the third servant and, re and he replied, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scatter no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. 
the master responded with rebuke. Because the master was not going to let the servant turn this on him and let him be blamed for what wasn't true, nor did it matter because the master gave him a task, not a free ticket to make an excuse. When our boss tells us to do something, what do we do? We do it. We see the risk. If we don't do it, there's going to be a consequence. So listen to how the master answered him. You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? He's actually being sarcastic to the servant. He says, and you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. This servant was totally responsible for his error. But rather than take ownership, he blame-shifted and turned it on the master. First off, the master didn't have to give him any responsibility to care for while he was away. He didn't have to. Giving the servant a talent was an act of grace. He gave him work and provision. Then Jesus responds, For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So where's Jesus going in this parable? Jesus is telling us he is the master. We are his servants. The disciples would understand this, but at the same time, they would hear this story and say, what master is going to give their servants that much money and that much responsibility? What is this guy thinking? Jesus used a large sum of money and a great responsibility to help his disciples see the grace they had received in Jesus. The joy the Father had in lavishing us with his gifts and his joyful desire to let us be a part of his plan and work and the reward of a faithful servant. They had received salvation. They had been given a gift you could not put a price tag on. They also were given the promise of the reward. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. When you put Jesus as the master in this story, it changes everything for us. In Christ's departure after his ascension, Jesus was foretelling what was going to happen and the call to a disciple of Christ. I'm going to go away and prepare a place for you. And while I'm away, I'm calling you, the church, to join me in accomplishing my work in the world through the helper, the Holy Spirit, that will come after I go to prepare a place for you. I've given each of my followers specific tasks to accomplish. I've given uh, uniquely to their gifts, talents, and according to their abilities. So we see the master do four things for the first two servants. Or three things, excuse me. In the first, he said, we learned that the master gave praised-filled approval. Well done, good and faithful servant. Number two, he grants privileges. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many. Number three, he rewarded. Enter into the joy of your master. As one commentator said, I wish we could end here at the first two servants. But in this sermon, Jesus is preaching to his disciples, and he knew some must be warned and not wooed. 
the scary thing in this passage is we get really excited about what he gives his servants. As someone who chooses to follow Jesus, they get really excited about what good might come their way. But they don't hear the warning. We see the master do four things to the, to the last seemingly pious, slothful, wicked servant. The master condemns the man. He's a wicked and lazy servant. Number two, the master corrects him. If he knew that the master was demanding that he harvested where he did not plant seeds, at least you should have deposited the money into the bank and received interest. Number three, he removed privileges. Take the talent from him, says the master, and give it to the one who has the ten talents. Lastly, he is punished. He is thrown, throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So who is this servant the master condemns, corrects, and removes privileges? He is like the follower Jesus is talking to in Matthew 7, 22, to those followers who, who said, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Remember what I shared at the beginning. How we view our masters and bosses is a direct reflection on how we view God. In his commentary on Matthew, Douglas Sean O'Connor says this about wicked servants. This servant sees Jesus as a hard or harsh or even mean, merciless or cruel character who acts unjustly, demanding a harvest from a field where no seeds have been planted. His view of God is so high, it's low. Oh Lord, you're, sir, you're, you, you're, you're such a sovereign master, an unmoved mover, that whatever I did with this talent, I wouldn't, it wouldn't matter to you anyway, so I did nothing. He has cloaked his laziness behind his solemn God-talk excuses. He has a high view of God, but a wrong view of God. He has a fear of God, an improper fear of God. And thus he has the audacity to blame generous Jesus for his own apathy and inactivity. Sounds very similar to something that happened in the garden. Adam, where are you? Adam, what happened? Lord, she took the fruit and she gave it to me. I didn't do this. This is on her. Rather, the servant who in the end, he wasn't a servant at all. He was slothful and didn't do anything. Was his doing going to save him? No. He was unwilling to surrender and put his faith in the master. The first two servants were rewarded because they were graciously chosen to receive the task from the master and faithfully handled the task they were given. Those three servants could not in any way push that master to give them anything. The master had to respond. He had to choose. And, 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 and the two saw the grace their eyes were open. They received the task for the master and faithfully handled the task they were given. 
O'Connor goes on to say this, in, the par- in this parable, the two servants have a perfect balance we all should have between God's grace and human work. Master, you gave me five talents, God's grace. And here I have made five more a faithful steward's work. Grace received drives joy-filled work given to God. I say it again. Grace received drives joy-filled work given to God. So if grace drives joy-filled human work until the return of Christ, what is the warning for us? What is the warning for you and I? The disobedient servant knew what he was supposed to do. Rather, he rebelled against the master. James 4, 17 says, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. This is a sin of omission. A sin that is a result of not doing something God's word teaches that we should do in response to the gospel. Busyness is not an excuse for the things God has called us to be about. Like the main thing, making disciples. And you think I've got this figured out. I do not. Just a few weeks ago, I think before we went to West Africa, our, my pastor literally said, you cannot use busyness as an excuse to be faithful to God. And I sunk down in my chair. And then I tried to change the subject and it didn't work. And now it's here. So for this servant, the sin here is slothfulness, desiring grace, but not joyfully working heartily unto the Lord. Jesus is warning these followers that to follow me, you must count the cost. So I have a few pictures of a restaurant in West Africa. And while in West Africa, we were in a village, it was about three hours from Niamey. Uh, you had to count the cost to go to this restaurant. It wasn't. So, uh, so this is uh, the kitchen that you walk through first. All right, go to the next picture. Um, this is the bed where he slept uh, after you pass the kitchen. Next picture. This is the table that, that we ate at. Well, this is the table we ate at. It was, it was, oh, trust me, the reward was coming. All right. This is right next to my chair. Uh, they did fail the health inspection by three points. That was it. And this is the reward. This got nothing on Shogun. Nothing. You know, the pre-Shogun meal, right? The rice, the egg, like the goodness, right? That, that was the word. That, that was the reward. I use restaurant loosely, but you had to take some risks to get to the reward, and the risk was very much worth it. But all kidding aside, while in, in West Africa, we met and you can show some of these pictures after this. We met believer after believer who had received the grace of the gospel because God sought them out. And each one had to count the cost to follow Christ. These believers, sorry you can't see it, but this is about 10-ish believers in there uh, that uh, we spent, um, the chiropractor still has not fixed my back. But we were crunched in about a four-foot ceiling. Uh, I've never heard a bear fit into a four-foot ceiling room. And 
uh, cry and whine as much as our bear, the pastor Eric Baker did. Um, brother was hurting. But these believers, they saw the reward and it outweighed the cost. And now as believers, they are using the gifts and talents God has given them to accomplish the task the master has laid out for them. This is the middle of the night. We're prepping the church building uh, to create heaven for bugs, literally. (laughs) And then the next picture, they wanted to teach more. So this is in the middle of the night, about midnight where uh, uh, Brother Eric is preaching and teaching them on, uh, the, the, on the, the process of salvation. Uh, here's our Brother Eric preaching again. And in this last picture, I believe, um, go to the one with Eric, myself, and Mamuni. Is, there, is that one in there? Mamuni, there's, three, there's Eric, myself, and another, another guy in there? Not in there? Okay. My fault. But there's a man named Mamuni. In the village where we ate that meal, Mamuni rides his motorcycle three hours from Niamey to this village at least two times a month. This village has had several men come to saving faith in Christ. He travels knowing the risk to go and disciple these believers and encourage them in hopes of seeing a church be planted. Why did he do this? Because his heart was dead. It was awakened by the Holy Spirit. And he counted the cost and saw the joyful reward of salvation in accomplishing his work in the world. If you're a believer in Christ Jesus, he has entrusted specific things to you and I. He has given you specific things based on your designs and abilities no matter what state our life is in, then he expects us to be productive in proclamation with the gospel and according to these abilities. Why has God given each of you specific gifts? It is to be used for the purpose of accomplishing the master's tasks. The the reason many of us feel so comfortable in the work that we do, I want you to hear this because this is alarming. The reason many of us feel so comfortable in the work that we do is because we are participating in work and being entrusted specific responsibilities by our bosses. And we love the joyful reward. For some of us, it may be the joyful reward being a provider, the joy of practicing our gifts, the pay increase, the time off, the recognition and success amongst our boss and peers. At the same time, we are so easily entangled in the lives of the American dream and our work. We can be the best in all that we do, or we can do whatever we want if we put our mind to it. We love that earthly reward. Tim Keller says this in Counterfeit Gods from a helpful article I read this week. More than other idols, personal excess and achievement leads to a sense that we ourselves are God. To be the very best at what you do, to be at the top of the heap means no one is like you. You are supreme. but I believe something much bigger is going on in the background of our lives that we poorly manage. You see, we wouldn't dare mishandle work responsibilities to our bosses or our businesses in fear of losing our jobs or causing harm to business, but we quickly excuse the call of Christian and pick and choose the things that we like. 
We look at our earthly masters and we live in fear of them. But when we look at God the Father, we tell Him what works best for us. In America, we treat Christianity more as a hobby or as an entertainment that is secondary to our jobs or the things that we love most. Which my concern is, does that make a person a follower of Jesus at all? How sad is it that we must go to West Africa to see this church stripped down to its simplest form, but see it be twice as faithful in accomplishing the task the Lord has laid out for them. If you'll show the picture that uh, has the, you know, some of y'all saw it. So this is the church broken down in its simplest form. I'm about to preach on a Sunday morning and a little boy walks up, goes to his mom while his mom's leading us in music and he just pees right there in front of the pulpit. Like right before I'm about to start. That'd be like the same thing of some of Colton at two, like walking up here and going, daddy, and then like peeing right here, right? But in the simplest form, They don't argue with God or pick and choose what they like or dislike about Christian faith. The cleanup crew didn't come in and and clean that up. That's normal life. And you know what? I thought it was the coolest thing ever. I was like, that's that's awesome. I'm going to preach in a puddle this morning. And I did. But it didn't distract anything of what they had come to gather to do. To worship the risen Lord and wait in anticipation of his return. They see the Lord for who he is, and they seek to be as faithful as possible in the call the Lord has placed on the believer. I'm convinced less is better. The less we have, the more we can accomplish. For for example, the picture right before I preached. They have, believers have little, very little in Niger, which empowers them, the ability to not be distracted from the plan that the master has set out for them according to their abilities. They have lived a life of never being chosen because they are not worthy. Then they encounter God who has specifically come in the flesh and chosen them. Don't be confused. The same thing and the same gospel has happened for Christians in America. But for most Americans claiming to be Christians, they believe they are worthy of God choosing them. That is not the gospel. That is demonic. That is not truth. I can go on and on about this. But where do we start to heed Jesus' warning? We compartmentalize our work and relationship with Jesus rather than see that Jesus gives us specific tasks according to our abilities. He blesses us with gifts and talents through the gospel. It is then Jesus who must be the driver in every rhythm of our lives so he may be proclaimed by our lips to our co-workers, strangers, to our neighbors, and to the nations. God has proclaimed this to be, God has proclaimed, promised this to the chosen. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 Through the power of the gospel, we rid ourselves from the things of this world and open ourselves up to all different kinds of suffering, depending on where and what we are doing for the gospel. Here's a warning. 
within the warning of slothfulness as believers. We take every risk in the things of this world that will give us a better, more rewarding life. But when we measure the cost of following Jesus, we pick and choose what we like and don't like. We treat Jesus like the most restaurant line. We get that burrito exactly like, like we like it and leave all that other stuff we don't over here. We make excuses, blame our busy schedule, and others then justify, listen to this, justify ourselves by measuring up to other believers. So we make excuses, we blame our busy schedule and others, then justify ourselves by measuring up to other believers. And listen to what this breeds. It only breeds division and reveals we are following a work's righteousness. We are called to live in the world, but not be of the world. Obeying Christ in this, calls, in this call means that the good work God has for us because it displays the glory of God. It cares for others and helps accomplish God's work in the world. But when our earthly success becomes the drive of how we view success, we have made work the idol in our life, rather than the tool God has given us to accomplish his work in the world. When we work or something else becomes our idol, we have no time for the things of God. We won't see the ministry God has given us in the rhythms of our life. The people of God has succumbed to treating church as a business. It's not going to scare you. We have, we have turned the family of God into a business, just like the place we go to work. It is simply this. We find a pastor, the best pastor, so he can do the ministry for us. It's basic business practice. If we need a man to preach and do ministry with our dollars, then let's find that man and delegate that task out to him. And, and we will call that our ministry because we give to it. In all reality, it makes sense why Christians think that. It's how so many of our businesses are ran. If we need to grow our business, we need to find the best person to build and grow that division. It's simple math. And some churches describe that method. And I believe that sets that church up for destruction. But listen to what Ephesians 4 says, 11 through 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. I continue on, 13 through 16. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of, his, of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, for whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the whole, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You cannot build Ephesians 4 church with a few pastors. The pastor's call is not to work so he can be delegated out the ministry task that we are called to be doing. Rather, the pastor's 
call is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So what does this mean about you and I who are not pastors? The responsibility is just as much on you and I than the pastor of loan. So while we wait for Jesus' return, God has given us a call to be faithful stewards of his word. And through that, we accomplish those good works to take to the gospel to the many different rhythms of our life where we work, where we live, and where we play. It is not to bring people to a worship gathering so our pastors can preach the gospel to them because that is what we pay them to do. No, it is to be equipped by the pastor so we can accomplish the work God has specifically called us to do together, specifically chosen by God for us. And it's to take those gifts we have been given together as the body of Christ, be equipped for specific work so we can take the gospel in places ultimately to the ends of the earth. Jeff Vandersnelt said this about our work. God is paying you to do full-time ministry where you work. This should be the most freeing news for you because so many of us think that the pastor's here and we're down here. No. Does the pastor have greater accountable, accountable responsibilities to the church body? Absolutely. But do they have a ministry? Yes. But we have a ministry, just like the pastors. Some of you may rebuke me by what I just said, but God has strategically placed you where you are at right now to accomplish certain tasks the Master has given you according to your abilities for ministry's sake. God is inviting you. He is giving you an invitation. Do you hear that? An invitation to join Him in His work. Some of you know this and you ignore it. And some of you are hearing this for the first time. It's okay to say, you don't like the job God has given you. It's okay to say that. I say that sometimes. I just, we do. It is not okay to say, then you are exempt of the ministry he's paying for you to do in that job. It's okay to say you struggle in certain areas of the call of a disciple and minister the gospel. It's not okay to say, then you are exempt from certain parts of the Christian faith. It is okay to say your job is very busy and you have very little free time. It is not okay to say that exempts you from being intentional in your life and your workplace with the gospel. Jesus calls those that are in Christ ministers and saints. This is not by choice, it is by grace. Doing these good works God has set out for us drives us deeper into Jesus and produces greater joy in God. Why do we see people who claim to be believers just feel like they have no purpose? Because they're not pursuing Jesus through the good works that he has called them to do. He's not joining, they are not joining God in laboring for the gospel's sake. God has given you and I gifts and talents. We can selfishly claim them as our own to grow our worth and wealth. which will lead us to forfeit our soul. 
through the saving grace of God, we, accomplish, we acknowledge the gifts and talents we have been given as tools to accomplish His work in the world. If you are not taking the talents God has given you to advance His kingdom, you're using them only for your self-interest and personal gain. But God is inviting you to use those gifts and talents. Church, don't misappropriate the master's talents he's given you. Rather, let them be used to multiply more labors for the kingdom. So Jesus is worshiping all that we do. Disciples are being made through the rhythms of our life. And through those disciples being made, our church and many churches in our city are multiplying to the ends of the earth. I'll say that again. Let your gifts be used to multiply more labors for the kingdom. So Jesus is worshiping all that we do. Disciples are being made through the rhythms of our life, and through those disciples being made, our church and many churches in our city are multiplying to the ends of the earth. Heed the warning. The slothful servant was not a servant at all. He was cast into hell. Based on what we read in the text, he did not hear, well done and good faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. He heard, depart from me, I never knew you. It wasn't because he didn't work hard enough. Brothers, because he didn't know God. You cannot know the good works that have been set out for you until you know the love God has for you. You have failed God deeply. But those failings do not waver God's love for you. His love is unconditional. He has perfectly displayed his love for you that while you were yet a sinner, a failure in your best of good deeds, Christ died for you on your behalf. He is calling you unto salvation to join him in these good works he has set out for you according to your abilities that will only produce more eternal joy in God. As Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Church, stop resting in the things of this world. I say that same thing to myself because I'm tempted with it every day. Rather repent. Get busy dying to the things of this world for the return of Christ is coming. He's coming. Because of this good news, we have been graciously offered to join him in his work of taking the gospel to the nations for the glory of God and anticipate The sounds of these sweet, sweet words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let us pray.